I'm Susan Seidelman, and I'm the director of Desperately Seeking Susan. My name is Barbara Boyle, and at the time that Desperately Seeking Susan was made, I was the senior vice president of Worldwide Production and the executive who was involved in getting this movie made. And I'm Mitch Sanford, one of the producers of Desperately Seeking Susan. I'm Sarah Pillsbury. I'm one of the, the two producers of Desperately Seeking Susan and uh, the other half of, of Sanford Pillsbury Productions. We were so excited when uh, Susan picked this song to start the movie um, because uh, this is just songs that Midge and I have always liked, girl group songs. They, they used it later in Mermaids, then Cher did a, Cher did a cover of it. But even though this was our first movie, it's, it's interesting that it starts with this beauty parlor scene because we've now had three or f no, four beauty parlor scenes in our movies. We, we try to have beauty parlor scenes in, in all our movies and are very proud that we have more beauty parlor scenes in our movies than in car chases. Because the, the film is very much about identity, who somebody is on the outside versus who they want to be on the inside, we decided to open the movie in a beauty parlor because that's so much about female identity and, and appearance and transformation. I think in the original script, the opening was actually set in a department store where, where she and her friend, I guess her sister-in-law, played by Laurie Metcalf, are trying on clothes. And ultimately, in one, one of the many rewrites, it, it was changed to a beauty salon because I think that um, the, the idea of being remade, which is what beauty parlors and beauty salons are about, you know, you go in looking frumpy, you, you go in being one person and you hopefully come out being transformed into somebody else, is really the essence of what the whole movie is about. Right from the very beginning, there were um, long conversations between myself and Ed Lockman, the, the, the director of photography, and Santa LaCosta, who was the production designer and the costume designer, about creating two very distinct worlds. Susan would have her own world and Roberta would have her world, and the, the colors in those worlds and the tone of those worlds would be very different. And uh, we came upon the idea that the character Roberta, who's this sort of um, middle-class housewife, suburban housewife, that her world would be very pastel-y and, and, and pink and peach and, and photographed almost through a soft lens. And uh, whereas the world of Madonna, which is New York, downtown New York, and, and a lot more vivid and, and, and harsh, that we would use more kind of almost like neon colors and, and it would have a much harder um, harder edge to it. Although again, because Madonna is sort of like a, represents something. She's not, this, this movie is not intended to be, obviously it's not realistic when you're dealing with amnesia in this way. It was, we wanted a kind of hyper reality. So we wanted Madonna's world to be kind of hyper realistic, to be gritty, but a kind of glamorized version of gritty. Um, so the first scene of the movie in this beauty parlor, if you notice, it's all these uh, peach and pink and, and, and very soft colors. And also it's dealing with the whole concept of, of Roberta is getting remade. So this first scene is kind of in essence, uh, spells out the theme for the entire movie. From the scene in the beauty parlor, we then uh, introduce 
Madonna's character in Atlantic City, again, where it's it's that kind of hyper-realism where it sort of has the grit of and the flash of, of Atlantic City and it's all sort of pushed a little bit so that it's real but it's it's unreal at the same time. Even the first time we see Madonna wearing the, the jacket with the pyramid on the back, that pyramid is is kind of an ancient, I think it might be an Egyptian symbol, but it's also the symbol on the back of the do dollar bill. So you, you again have those two things going. You have the kind of um, exoticness and uh, adventuresomeness of this girl that's wearing this jacket with the pyramid on the back, but you also have the material girl because it's about, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a gold uh, symbol of a dollar bill. Originally, Leora Barish um, was a friend and she was told us about a project that she was doing um, called Desperately Seeking Susan and it was a, a woman obsessed with the personals and we said what every producer always says when they hear an idea they like from a writer they like, oh, let me see it when it's done. And one day, it was on my doorstep in a manila envelope. And I really liked it, but Mitch, had been much more involved with development, knew that not only was it good, but it was really good, and you don't see things like this very often. And we fell in love with it right away. And actually, both Richard Trugman and um, John Avenant and Steve Tisch also went after it, but because we were friends of Leora and said we would really involve her in picking directors, blah, 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 um, she decided to go ahead with us. And it was the first thing that Midge and I actually reached in our pockets and, and spent money on. Then what happened, the fortuitous thing that happened after about a year, a little over a year into it, is we heard about this new director from New York who had done a very low-budget film, Smithereens, that was going to con, and this was Susan Seidelman. So they sent the script to me, and of course, I'm uh, being superstitious by nature. I saw the script, and it said, Desperately Seeking Susan. That was the title, and I instantly thought that was kind of good karma, that maybe this was a project that was in some way destined for me. And I read the script and was instantly attracted to the material because um, it reminded me in some ways of a French film I had seen called Celine and Julie Go Boating, a very obscure French film I had seen at the New York Film Festival about two women who kind of uh, change identities or whose identities get mingled and it also involved magic. I went out to L.A., and when I talked to the writer, Leora Barish, I was surprised to find that this obscure French film, Celine and Julie, had also been the film that had inspired her. I think we were two of the only people in America who had seen this film, but we were both amazingly charmed by it, and that this was a film that, that had inspired her when she wrote Desperately Seeking Susan. One of the things about uh, Desperately Seeking Susan was that, for me, it was a little bit inspired by Alice in Wonderland. So the idea that, um, for me, Madonna was this white rabbit kind of character, that this innocent suburban housewife, this innocent character, could, could follow this other person that, that was kind of intriguing and always sort of moving someplace, but that leads her on an adventure into another world where ultimately she finds herself. Um, there's a shot that we're about to come up to right now. It's a scene that, uh, that takes place during Roberta's 
30th birthday party where she feels out of place amongst Gary, her husband, and his friends. So she steps outside on the balcony just to kind of be by herself and get some fresh air. And she looks across the bridge and she kind of sees the shimmering lights of the city. And suddenly we cut to New York in a kind of highly romanticized version of, you know, because to me, bridges are romantic images anyway, of a bus pulling up and Madonna, this mysterious woman, stepping off the bus. And for the first time, we see how the two women are connected, this, this idea of the bridge that visually connects the scenes of, of uh, Roberta longing for a, another life and Madonna living this other life. What added to the magic of this little sequence really was Tom Newman's music. It's the first time we hear what essentially is kind of the, uh, it's, it's the wistful, Roberta wistfully wanting to be Susan, um, this kind of tinkling theme that goes throughout the movie that to me is the essence of this yearning that, that uh, Roseanne Arquette's character has to be somebody else. She's yearning to be somebody else. And I think Tom was able to capture that. The scene in the Port Authority bath, bathroom, I think, is quintessential Madonna. Here's an example of where um, I don't think that Madonna uh, changing in the uh, changing in the bathroom was written into the into the script, but I think using the uh, air blower to kind of the hand dryer to to uh, dry her under her arms was a, a a typical Madonna moment, and I think it's those kinds of little gestures throughout the movie that, again, don't have so much to do with acting as they have to do with attitude, giving this character an attitude that is really intriguing. And then, of course, the wonderful moment at the end of the scene, you know, him turning off the light on her. It's like she doesn't even exist. exist. He can just turn off the light when he leaves the room. The original script of Desperately Seeking Susan that Sarah and I optioned was kind of a more European, cerebral sort of a movie. But in the original script, what she did is she didn't remember who she was. She had the suitcase, and she looked in the suitcase, and, she, and there were clues in the suitcase. And so she would take a clue, and she would follow it to try to figure out who she was. And one of them was a postcard for the Natural History Museum. So in the original draft, even though we, we soon learn that our character Susan has little or no interest in anthropology, um, Roberta takes the same postcard, goes to the Museum of Natural History, and becomes, you know, a budding anthropologist. In the movie, the postcard is of the Magic Club. And I'll never forget uh, that I was actually away. Um, Barbara had successfully, you know, fought for it. It was not a slam dunk at all at Barbara. And I, tell me if I'm, I'm quoting you wrong, but I remember Barbara in frustration at one point saying to uh, some of the other executives there, you know, they don't want Barbara Streisand, they don't want Goldie Hawn, they want $5 million and they want to make it with up and coming actresses in New York. Initially, the biggest change that I, or influence I had over the direction of the script and ultimately then 
the casting had to do with, with making the character of Susan and making the New York world that she inhabited feel very much a part of what was going on in New York in the 80s. And that had to do with this kind of um, downtown punk new wave uh, thing that was going on there. And again, at that time, I was sort of involved in the, in the music scene. And I had heard about this singer named Madonna, who was very much a part of that scene. And she was singing in some of the, the clubs, like the uh, forgetting the names of the clubs, but there were a lot of like all night clubs that were going on, dance clubs. And so I had seen her perform, I knew who she was, and I knew that she had this just amazing, it, it wasn't even so much her voice as a singer, it was that she had this just sense of herself and this style that I thought might be really interesting to incorporate into the character of Susan, and also to make that character, in my opinion, just a little bit more reflective of, of contemporary New York. But I just thought that there was something about her, her as a person, her persona, that even if she wasn't a, a, a trained actress, that if I could just get that on film, it would be really interesting. Um, so I talked with them. They, they were pretty open to new ideas. Uh, on the other hand, I think Orion, you know, being the financiers, would have liked a name, and they were they were interested in having somebody who had some name value and had made some movies before. So uh, they indulged me. They did let me do a screen test with Madonna, but they also insisted that we, that I meet with a lot of other actresses. I'll never forget, we were going in for a meeting and I was really nervous. And Midge said, why are you really nervous? Nothing ever happens in these meetings. <laughs> because they don't, nobody ever says. No one yes, ever said. Yes, we'll make a deal yeah. on this script. Yes, we're going to make this movie. It never happens. It's our fantasy. But, <laughs> but it, it never, never ever, ever. So we go in and we see Barbara, and she says, "Well, we want to make the movie, and uh, we're going to make it for five million dollars. And there's just uh, four hurdles. I mean, there's the budget. I'm sure you can do that. And there's the director, and of course the director's already approved. And there's the producers, and they're already approved. And you know." Uh, I guess there's five hurdles. An actress, I'm sure you'll get one of these people, and then we have to work on the script. And certain enough, with actress, we got uh, Rosanna Arquette. Uh, What's early on? Right away. In fact, the funny thing, Rosanna reads the script, and she calls up and says, I'd love to play the part of Susan. And we said, well, actually, we were offering you the bigger part. We were offering you the lead of Roberta. OK, I'll play that part. <laughs> but then the script well, was a, a little bit. So Mitch says to me after this, by kind of matter of fact, Mitch says to me, does that mean it's a go? And I said, yes. <laughs> of course, Susan's in New York, and the three of us are in LA. And Susan comes up with the bright idea that she wants to star Madonna in this movie at opposite uh, Roseanne Arquette and I think it's no secret that Ellen Barkin was the one that you know wanted to do it and uh, we had actually were in the process of convincing Orion would be fine and it's like well who the heck is Madonna and, and Susan said just do me a favor and meet her everybody says goodbye in person the next thing that happened was I said, okay, I'll meet with her. And of course, uh, Freddie DeMann, her then manager, still manager, president of her company, sent me, it must have been a dozen music videos. Now, it's interesting if you've never seen a music video, which I never had. I mean, MTV just wasn't that pervasive at that time. 
what how much of a headache it can give you because if you watch a dozen of them in a row and you're like a grown-up person so I'm looking at this before this meeting trying to make heads or tails and all I thought was this is an editor's media this is all about cutting and cutting within a certain time and I like 14 at Cedrin later I was through these 12 videos and I knew nothing about this woman so now the meeting day is set up. I've done my homework, and all it's done is given me a headache. I'm not convinced at all about anything about her acting ability, because who could tell? I couldn't. And in Madonna walks to my office looking like Madonna. And I get up to greet her. And I know what she looks like now, because I've seen the videos. And I get up to greet her, and she walks up to me and falls on her knees and says, I'll do anything to get this part. Now, I'm not really used to being either upstaged or speechless. And I was like, grown up. And you know, this important movie executive with this very big office and you know, my own TV set and everything. And I said, well, gee, I'm sorry, I'm heterosexual. And she said, well, that's all right. You should try everything, Barbara. <laughs> And then, in order to move forward, I said, you know, I've heard quite a bit about you. And she said, from whom? And I said, well, frankly, from my 17-year-old son. And she said, what's his name? And I said, David. And she said, do you have a piece of paper and a pencil? Another word, she was conducting this interview. And I said, yes. So she wrote a letter to David, dear David, please tell your mother. And she handed me this letter and said, give it to David. I said, listen, this is, you know, a." a very young director, this, these are very young producers, why do you even want to be an actress? And she said to me a really honest thing, she said, have you ever seen me perform? I said, only on MTV, she said, you have to come to one of my acts, because if you'd ever seen me perform, you could see that I can't do this when I'm 40. It would be ridiculous, but I feel if I can learn to be an actress, I can do that all my life. And I thought that was pretty intelligent. And it really made sense. And I said, well, here's what you have to do. You have to go see my friend Lee Grant in New York, this, which is where Madonna lives. And I said, you have to meet her because I trust her a lot. And you have to get from her an acting coach. And we're going to give you four weeks of acting lessons, and then we're going to do a screen test. And I said, if you find this insulting because you're a major star in another media, or you're about to be, thank God, <laughs> then we can go back to Ellen Barkin, which everyone seems to be convinced about, and I won't have to worry at night. And she said, I'll do it. And she did. She went back to New York. She took a series of acting classes. She went to see Lee. Lee, whatever happened between them, Lee recommended someone for her to study with. She studied with that person, and we did the test. Now you get to the next step. Susan calls up again and says, now whatever you think of the test, I believe in Madonna. <laughs> and of course the next day I got the test. And I said, I'm glad you do, I don't. I remember when we did do the screen test, we did it out at Union Square Park. Again, Madonna was far from a household name. I remember when we were filming it, there was a crowd of some kids that came around because you know there was a camera and we didn't generate a big crowd, but there were a few people. And I remember 
some people kind of whispering amongst themselves and pointing over to Madonna and saying, you know who that is? That's Cindy Lauper. So um, the screen test proved that, it didn't prove that Madonna was a brilliant actress at this point, but it did prove that she had some quality that the camera liked. And, you know, movie stars need that X factor. To me, that's what makes a, a, a star a star. It's not their brilliant acting ability. Uh, in theater, it's totally different. I think in theater, you need to know how to command the stage, and that has to do with craft and technique. But I think in, in the movies, it's just about whether you've got that X factor, that thing that's going to mesmerize the camera. And I, and I felt that she had it. Luckily, Barbara Boyle um, was converted <laughs> to being a supporter. And then I think she and the producers had the job of converting the powers that be. But ultimately, we were able to win out. And I think, again, because the expectations for the film weren't great and because the budget wasn't great, we were allowed to take those kinds of risks that ordinarily we wouldn't have been able to take. Now, this is such an example of, of uh, Susan Seidelman's sort of wry view of modern life, this kind of montage of Ro Rosanna, Roberta, rushing in here with the timer going off on the rotisserie and the, the coffee being made. And um, this scene takes the relationship just that little bit further in terms of you really seeing a man not caring about his wife and coming up with what you sense is probably a, uh, a fishy tale about what he has to do. Well, he's sort of the epitome of the male chauvinist of the time, and it's an exaggerated portrait for sure, but one that certainly is born in reality in terms of, you know, I'm providing well, look at your beautiful house, I have, I make these hot tubs, I'm on television, why are you asking for more? And the thing, and why can't you go, to you? and why can't go you go do the one errand that I, that I asked you to do when you went into the city to do? And yeah. she forgot to do it, like, right? But, yeah, the radio. He's so funny, you know, and he's so charming that, you know, you could understand someone marrying a guy like that, I'm sure, when he was after her. He was absolutely fabulous and won her over absolutely. What are you wearing? Jacket. I remember the um, costume designer, when we were in pre-production, looking at everybody's jackets, um, I remember at the time I had a black silk baseball jacket that I was wearing, and he was looking at everybody's jacket because he really wanted to come up with the jacket that she was going to be wearing. And it's so and incredibly did. original. Yeah. Oh, it's fabulous. Totally original. We all have Look, it. We all wear it. Nothing like my baseball jacket. He was both the production designer and the costume designer, and uh, I thought what it was was wonderful. He did what with Madonna because he embraced her style, but then took used it so perfectly, integrated it into the movie, into the story, and really kind of I think enhanced Madonna's style. And Madonna actually went away from this movie with you know with ideas that she had gotten from Santo in terms of how she ended up presenting herself for for the next uh, year or so. It was uh, unusual and, and great, actually, in a, in a studio movie to have the production designer also be the costume designer. One of the wonderful things about that was that um, it gave a uniformity to the feel of the movie because, you know, often a costume designer, they, they tend to communicate with each other, but, you know, sometimes you have somebody, you know, a costume designer puts the characters in like a wonderful 
outfit with polka dots and they happen to be sitting on a, on a striped couch and that could either work or not work. Um, the great thing about Santa was that the kind of feeling and tone of it was reinforced. You know, this whole theme of, of Rosanna living in this fluffy pastel world was reinforced in, in the clothing she wore, in the sets that she inhabited, and, and the same with Madonna. Um, it, 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 what, what else was kind of interesting was that I think uh, Santa was wise enough to look at a performer like Madonna and rather than trying to transform her into something else, he saw what was interesting about her. I remember one day uh, he actually went to her house. At the time she was living down the street in a, in a loft right down the street from where we are right now. And he went and just sort of went through her closets with her. And what he did was kind of pick out stuff that, that was a part of her, that was, that was Madonna-like, but then add stuff to it to make it just heightened enough for the movie version of, of Susan. And I think this combination of using what existed, but emphasizing it or kind of heightening it was what made the whole stylization of the movie so strong. Aidan Quinn was an interesting, um, it was a very tough um, character to figure out in the writing and then in the casting and then for Aidan to get a handle on. And he was very involved in kind of formulating that character. Once we cast him, he, he, he was terrific. I mean, he had a lot of great ideas. We didn't even have a name. What was his name? Was Penn. And he came he, up with in Dez, the original script. Dez, as in Desmond, a good Irish name. And the thing that was wonderful, uh, uh, was wonderful, I mean, with this character is that, you know, we as women were very sensitive to the fact that we did not want this guy to become the girl in the movie. You know, we wanted to give him, you know, a place he was really from and a place that that he was going to go. In the script, the thing that was uh, really wonderful and that has always worked was this the, the relationship between the characters, the idea that one woman yearns to be somebody else and that, you, that through the uh, device of the personal column that she could get to kind of live out some, vicariously live out somebody else's adventurous life. Um, what happened was, it, it was kind of a great idea, but it needed plot. <laughs> it was sort of a great theme that needed a plot to sustain it. So I think the biggest problem all along was coming up with the device, literally the plot device, the MacGuffin, that would sustain the mystery that would keep the movie going. You know, what, what is going to keep connecting these two women? I mean, the casting was absolutely amazing, and of course, after the two women, this was the good part. Um, the studio, in, including me, didn't have much to say. I mean, I, I had a lot to say about the script and a lot to say about getting us to this, but there was enormous trust in Midge and Sarah's taste and in Susan's instincts, mm -hmm. uh, really. Um, you know, their taste and her instincts were just, as we now were working together four or five months at this point, there, there became a real level of, okay, it's Barbara's project, and okay, Barbara, trust them, so let it be. I mean, I, you know, it was I who was on the line, and I actually learned to trust, as I saw, you know, piece after piece of this unfolding, a lot the producers, and a lot, as I say, Susan's kind of gut instinct 
particularly for this New York scene and who would look right in it. Mm -hmm. And that's where the casting comes around again, like Santo's art direction and production design. That's the way the people that sort of peopled the world that Roberta went into. I think in various um, versions of the screenplay, we knew that there needed to be a MacGuffin, but we didn't know what it was. I know at one time there was something about a harmonica that had been owned by a rock star or a, a guitar, some musical instrument that was had some significance. The, 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 the MacGuffin that I remember the most was at one time there was a valuable stamp. There's a postcard that Rosanna finds in Susan's suitcase. And at, at one time in the, the script, there was the idea that the stamp on the postcard was something valuable, was like a, you know, million-dollar stamp, and, and that this was the device that the bad guys were after. But we ultimately discarded that idea, and I don't remember how it came about, but we somehow came with, a, with the idea of these... Um, the earrings and the jacket, the Egyptian theme. And I think that the reason for these, again, it's silly, you know, valuable Egyptian earrings. And again, it ties in with the pyramid on the back of the jacket and stuff. But I think that what worked about it was that the idea of something that was exotic like Egypt, which which had a kind of, um, you know, it, it, faraway places, other lives, you know, it has a kind of mythical... Uh, adventurous feel to it, as well as it could be something, you know, in this movie anyway, of value. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a treasure that's worth something that bad guys could be after. Because literally, we were just looking for an, an object that would have some resonance that we could use, so that, so that there could be some element of, of, of jeopardy, which is what the plot needed to enable the women to kind of keep twisting in and out of each other's lives. You know, in this particular story, the way, and, and the fact that, and Barbara was saying, the things that she is able to do um, in her own way is, you know, you had the feeling that unless she bumped her head and didn't know who she was, she would not have been able to do that. But because she thought she was this other person, who could do anything and led this incredible, incredibly free life, um, she was allowed to f really find out what her potential was and what she was able to do. This is my phone number. Jim must have given it to you. It's like a deja vu. How can you have a deja vu if you don't remember anything? No, 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 I mean it. I love this line but he here. Was, he was, How can you have deja vu if you don't remember anything? <laughs> it's all deja vu. It's all deja vu. Well, we, we do it now. Now that Midge and I really are losing our memory, um, we, we, we sometimes quote this, this very scene where we, um, we go, I don't know. I can't remember. I don't know. I can't remember. <laughs> hold the elevator. Hold the elevator. lines from movies we've done. <laughs> 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 Start spouting no, no. them. But this was a difficult, this was very difficult. It took a while into the production for this character and for Aiden to make sense to the, to the dailies that we were seeing. Uh, this was not an easy one. It was very tough, it and was Aiden very wanted tough. to play it angrier than we felt was right, but he was right. Because he, the thing about him in the midst of a comedy, be deciding that he was going to be, you know, sort of such a seriously intended person, really, uh, again, grounds a film which has these kind of wild and, 
and goofy elements. It puts you back, you know, it, it gives you the kind of reality base, uh, you know, that, that, the, that really helps, you know, this movie. Another big device that um, thematically was correct but was difficult to, to figure out how to play it was the whole concept of amnesia. We had a lot of conversations script-wise and even while we were filming the movie uh, about this whole amnesia issue. Um, we needed, we, we liked the idea of amnesia. I liked the idea of amnesia because it was a device that you could use to have somebody get knocked over the head, forget who they were and become somebody else. Um, I'm also a great fan of, of old screwball comedies, you know, Preston Sturgis and um, Billy Wilder and, you know, amnesia is sort of a stock device from those great 1940s and, and uh, 30s and 40s comedies. Again, yeah, the tone in, in which it was to be done needed to be, it had to be done with a wink and a nudge. Um, I think if you played amnesia as medical amnesia, it would have been silly and heavy-handed, but I think if you could, if there was a tone in the writing, in the acting, in the directing, whereby you could kind of say, okay, amnesia's silly, let's just go with it because isn't it fun as a way to get these women to change, to, to let Roberta become Susan, the audience would not groan, but they'd go with you, and that, that was the hope. There was a product placement, you know, thing, and they... Well, camel cigarettes. cigarettes. Camel cigarettes. Was, uh, and we got a very tiny amount of money for them. Looking back on it, it's kind of, why did we bother? But You know what I mean? But money was but such anyway, an issue. But anyway, money was such an issue, it was, what, $5,000 or something And Susan like smokes. Susan, our character, right. Susan, Susan our smokes. character smokes, so she's going to have to smoke something. Okay? They, they read the script, they say we want to be involved. Um, we were sending them all the drafts of the script, but somehow they must have stopped reading them. Because what happens is, she, in, at the end of the scene, she takes out the cigarette, she smokes, she coughs. Aiden Quinn says, maybe you should stop. <laughs> well, they were really angry, let me tell you. And they provided jackets. You know, those, there, there's some kind of you know, gift that they give everybody that says camel on the jacket. Um, I don't know if, they, if we ever got the money from them, but it was one of those things that uh, clearly the joke was more important to us than the five thousand. And actually, later in this piece comparing uh, Desperately Seeking Susan and Eve. Um, and Eve, there was actually a section talking about the use of cigarette smoking, which of course the, the, the a cigarette being a, a some sort of you know I guess some sort of penal substitute. That, that the, the use of how Susan you, does smoke cigarettes, but Roberta doesn't smoke oh cigarettes. And, 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 for, and, and when we first read this, Mitch and I goes, this is ridiculous. You know, we weren't thinking this. And then, of course, we go, well, you know, we, we were thinking it, but maybe we were. <laughs> maybe there, we were. There were a bunch of women, you know, probably all having our periods at the same time, too. And who knows what we were sort of thinking in the, our collective unconscious. But I think it's interesting what, what a, an author intended in the first place and if in fact that was written in a fiction smoked in the yeah, yeah. Just those details like dragon noodle, you know, trying to figure out what's the name of the restaurant going to be, uh, you know, I mean those little details that, I mean, her putting on the helmet and looking like this, every detail was so carefully planned and thought out um, and then visually placed. In a scene. Look at this image with the suitcase with the skulls. 
and the dragon noodle. I mean, I just think it's so funny. Now here's another thing. Look at the use of gels. You see, look at the green on that and the red. The, one of the things that, um, that Ed Lockman did in this movie that wasn't done that much is that even in, in daylight, he is using fairly brightly colored uh, gels. Um, I mean, here, there you can see the sort of the yellow view. But even in the daytime, he was using um, these gels. And it was not a look that you, that you saw. I mean, MTV wasn't that advanced. No, that's right. It's absolutely I mean, accentuated. And that was the idea. Things are slightly off kilter, and they're a little bit sharper. And, you're, you're and that's what happens and with Roberta. And particularly with she gets, you know, the whole thing gets to fall into place. And I think that the essence of Lachman and Santos is the integration of the story with the look of the movie. For me, that the model for this film was, uh, in, in some ways, um, Alice in Wonderland. The idea that Aidan Quinn lives in this loft, that you have to kind of walk through the back of a Chinese restaurant up a set of stair, an outside fire escape, in through a door, up another set of stairs into a loft to get to, added to the kind of wonderful, um, through the looking hole, you know, down, going through things to, to, to get to something at the end of the adventure. Um, and, and to me, those were all the kinds of things that converge, you know, when you're location scouting. He could have lived in, in an apartment that was, you know, a funky East Village apartment that was on the street. You get off park in front of his house, walk in a door, and you're in his apartment. Nothing was in the script about having to walk up steps and through Chinese restaurants. And but but once we hit on this theme that everything, you know, the idea of of the adventure of exploring new worlds, suddenly during the location scouting process, we found the you know we came up with the idea. Wouldn't it be great if his apartment was behind something again, something exotic? It's 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 a it's a Chinese restaurant, and in his apartment there's big Chinese billboard movie billboards. Again, adding to this exotic adventure that uh, that Robert is going through. One of the things that we talked about in one of these many meetings um, with Barbara and, and some other executives at Orion is, okay, what's the MacGuffin going to be? And, you know, there were all kinds of ideas. There was money in a suitcase. There were jewels sewn into the jacket. A harmonica. My favorite was a harmonica that Bob Dylan had used. That was... I'm not going to use that. Yeah. <laughs> but but uh, finally, it was. And then the other, thing, the other thing that we learned to stop talking about is because everyone always wants to know what's the tone of the movie going to be. It's just it's a, just a question, and you usually, the way to answer it is you usually have to come up with another movie that had the same kind of tone. And we would mention the movie Diva. And Mike Medivoy would say, don't, please don't, don't, don't talk have, about that movie. It didn't make enough money. Don't ever. So finally, we stopped, we stopped mentioning Diva, you know, at all. Either one. The tone of the movie was evolving as, even before Madonna uh, came on board, I think the original script, you know, before I got involved with it, was much more like a European art film. It was much sort of headier. That was the, the version that had Susan 
being a bit older, I think, you know, if they were considering, this was, bef again, before I was involved, but if they were considering actresses like Diane Keaton and Goldie Hawn, clearly they had a, a, an older character in mind. And, and because there was a certain element to the script, you know, I think her, the first reference, in, instead of her in the movie, she's a girl who's... Uh, you know, hanging out with gangsters in Atlantic City and uh, coming to the East Village in New York. I think in the original script, she was coming back from Guatemala. It has those references again of, you know, those 60s, you know, characters who, 60s hippie-esque kind of characters that travel to Mexico and, you know, with um, Birkenstock sandals and backpacks and, uh, you know, that she was kind of a bit more of a hippie wanderer, countercultural kind of person, and the whole anthropological subplot. So the first change, probably to change the demographic of who this movie was for, was was maybe when I got involved on and had conversations with Leora on the script level, when when the the kind of trying to bring in the element of of 1980s contemporary New York new wave, punk, whatever that meant, which again um, was um, taking it away from the European art cinema world and, 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 and making it a little more uh, sort of pop cultural, uh, having it more be about sort of the times we're living in now and music and stuff like that. Um, the male lead, Aidan Quinn, he had done one movie before this, a movie called Reckless, that was an okay movie, wasn't a great movie. He played a kind of, you know, tough guy, you know, sort of biker guy from the wrong side of the tracks. Um, the movie wasn't a, a big success, but he certainly had a, a kind of screen charisma that was interesting. Aiden had a, a difficult job because he was the straight man in the movie. And actually, there was early on, I remember having conversations with the producers and, you know, there was some concern as to whether he was playing it too heavy or too straight. I think when the first dailies came back, there was some talk about, you know, this is supposed to be a light comedy and is this too, is he too serious? Um, and actually, I think his straight man performance grounds the movie and makes it work because, um, you know, here you have Susan who's, uh, the, Madonna's version of Susan who's this kind of wild adventurous, and then you have the Roseanne Arquette character who's wandering around with amnesia. If, if Aidan Quinn's character, if he had played him as a kind of, you know, wild and crazy biker guy, for example, I think all the characters would have been floating in, somebody need to have their, needed to have their feet on the ground. And I think that's the anchor that the Aidan Quinn, not just in the character as written, but in the way he played the character. Um, it, and it's hard to play the straight man. Um, sometimes actors who, who play those roles feel like they have to kind of jazz it up in some way because they feel like they're going to get lost because everyone else is so colorful. And I think it was really uh, wise that, that he kept that sort of understated, serious quality. He wasn't heavy-handed and he wasn't a grump, but, but he's, he's kind of the level-headed one in the mix. My build. Here was the big kiss. 
it was important to us that uh, the kiss came more from Roberta. We actually, I it think was another was product placement thing. Mm -hmm. I started getting really nervous, you know, because it was we were getting money from these people. Well, can you really see the label? Can you really see the label? I mean, we had to have the label shown three times in the movie in different scenes. Wait, this anyway. This is a nice, sexy moment with them on other either side of the partition, uh, being unable to display. The chemistry between these two was was, it was just very, yeah, really wonderful. great, just great. When a movie. The, the production executives are very separate from the distribution executives. In this case, they were so separate that they were in different cities. So we go to New York to see the unveiling of the marketing people's ideas of what the poster will be. And they unveil, you know, one after another. Madonna standing in front of a brick wall with a little little Roseanne arcade. Because by this time, we're Madonna's, the Madonna's time, she's the star with a little picture of Rosanna peeking over her. And their, their favorite one was, was, a, was, toaster? A, was a toaster, was a toaster, toaster. With, with, yeah, with Rosanna Ugh. reflected in the toaster and Madonna popping out with a Polaroid. And, and uh, it, looked like, it looked like Mr. Mom or something. I don't know. It did not look like the movie that, that we had made. So then Midge... Needless to say, it was really upsetting. Susan's there, you, right. me, Midge, Sarah. Mm -hmm. And they're all lined up on like a blackboard, all these different campaigns. So I started at one end of the blackboard this end was a waste paper basket, and I went like this and pushed all the ads into the waste paper basket. Do you remember that? And I said, this is, what movie are you trying to sell? I didn't think they got it at all. So anyway, so to go on, so, so Mitch anyway, remembers. I said, you know, Herbert's took these pictures on a Saturday? No. Well, Orion spent $10,000 to have him take these pictures. No. They've already been in Rolling Stone and Newsweek. No. Okay, we have to then locate these pictures. Reed Roosevelt was the publicist of the, uh, on the movie and stayed on a little bit afterwards to, to uh, help with uh, publicity. And he was really fantastic. We get the, the slides come over to Orion. Um, and the slides are the pictures that Herberts took of the two of them together, dressed alike in various poses with the jewelry and the jackets and the whole thing. So uh, one of the executives sits at his desk, and one of these executives who doesn't really get the movie at all, he looks at his desk and he holds up this slide to his window, and he says, well, there would be two problems if this was the poster. The first one would be everybody would think it was a lesbian movie. And, and also, they're dressed the same. Look, just do us one favor. Just do a mock-up of this, just like you did with all the other ones. You know, big, heavy cardboard, the photograph, the billing block. So they did, and they came up with a, a great, great tagline. I know, and that's where you know synergy works. Because in fact, I think it may even have been the same guy who didn't like yes, the picture was. who came, came up, up with the great tagline, which was, it's a life so outrageous it takes two women to lead it. Live it. Live it. And, and it was perfect. Don't the fortuitous thing that happened after about a year, a little over a year into it, is we heard about this new director from New York who had done a very low budget film, Smithereens, that was going to con, and this was Susan Seidelman. Smithereens took place in New York and showed New York so well. I mean, I remember that character. In Smithereens, I don't remember the character's name anymore, but Susan Berman played the 
the was the actress who played that part. The use of, of her like walking around, putting those posters up, yeah. you know, and 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 just the, and the subway and all of the locations in New York, the kind of locations that when you've seen a million movies done in New York, you never saw that New York. Yeah, and, and it that was and true. that was what that was one of the many wonderful things that that Susan Seidelman brought to Desperately Seeking Susan. We worked with the casting directors, Billy Hopkins and uh, Risa Brayman, who have gone on to cast, you know, huge Oliver Stone movies and Fatal Attraction and uh, a gazillion other movies. They're now, you know, hugely well-regarded uh, casting directors. But at the time, they had just been working for um, a theater company and, and doing some local New York casting. So this was their big movie break. But what was interesting about the way that the cast was put together was that it was an interesting combination of talent. Here was Rosanna Arquette, who was probably the most experienced of all of us, having done, you know, two or three movies at that time. So we had our Hollywood starlet. And then Billy and Risa had this great pool of really interesting acting talent. And then since I came from the... Um, kind of independent, New York independent, uh, very low budget movie scene, I knew a bunch of people who were um, just people, sort of downtown characters who were performing in these low budget movies that, that probably no one on the West Coast had ever or will ever see. And, um, and so I sort of brought those people to the equation, people like uh, Richard Hell, who had been a, one of the leads in, in, in Smithereens and Rocket's Red Glare, and Richard Edson. Um, and in a sense, Madonna was also coming from that New York downtown world. So, so, so it was sort of my background or, or, or my knowledge of that world that kind of added that element. And I think the convergence of these three factors is what ended up making the, the cast so special and, and also so specific to, to what was going on culturally at that time period, you know, that New York and, and ultimately not just New York, because these people's careers went way beyond New York, but what was happening culturally in the, in the mid-'80s. I think what was so special about the script and is that the script, I hate using the word, it was a feminist script. I don't, I'm not sure what that means uh, in, in, in the 1990s context, but, but it certainly was, there weren't that many movies that, were, that, that had two such strong female leads that was really about a feminist issue, somebody d discovering who they were, being liberated, um, finding their, their own identity. I mean, it really is, a, the whole movie is about who am I is, is this identity quest. Um, so, so philosophically, it was about something that was very interesting that I think all the women behind the scenes, myself, Barbara Boyle, the producers, the actresses, all related to, but it was also fun. Um, there had been European sort of, uh, you know, kind of intellectual films that dealt with feminist issues, and there, there really weren't that many, I can't, I can't even think of any, you know, American commercial movies that 
that had such strong roles for women and that, that dealt so blatantly, but in an entertaining way. I mean, what we did was we sort of, it's, it's, it's a, a feminist track that we disguised in a uh, screwball comedy of sorts. So we were able to say a lot of things we wanted to, to say, but, but using um, sort of tricks and, and humor to, to describe to, to make the message palatable to people who wouldn't ordinarily be interested in that message. Susan, will you get the phone? There's ideas that work on the page, there's ideas that work in your head, and then there's ideas that work in cinema. And Leora was great about this because I think, um, you know, once the director was involved, I mean, that's why I think directors, when they get involved in a script stage, sometimes they can <laughs> mess around and ruin the whole thing. But if there's a good relationship between the writers and producer and directors, they can each bring their own point of view and reinforce and, and kind of heighten the ideas that are maybe in there in, in some form. Anyway, once Madonna was cast, the, the script didn't change. And it wasn't that the dialogue changed. It was that the attitude changed. And to me, that's sort of the quintessential thing, because I'm a great believer. I mean, unless you're working with an amazingly skilled actress and, and you know, there's, there's a lot of, you know, Meryl Streep could be anything. You know, she can be Sophie and Sophie's Choice and she can be Karen Silkwood and Silkwood. Um, but in, in this kind of movie, which was so much about contemporary life and trying to put its finger on the pulse of, 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 of a certain time. Um, and, and because it had a whimsical quality, it wasn't about performances per se, it was really about attitude and, and trying to capture the flavor of a time. That um, for me, my, I saw my job as being able to incorporate the things I found interesting about where I was living, when I was living, and who I would like to live in that world, uh, and, and get it on the celluloid. We always feel that the Magic Club, well, the Magic Club's a funny story, because uh, I remember I was out of town when they were still trying to come up with the MacGuffin and the plot, and, and Midge was talking to me on the phone. She said, now you're going to think this is the craziest idea, but let me preface it by saying that Barbara and Susan and Leora and I all agree that this is the right thing to do. So what, what all could, our weight. What could, I, what could I say? But also, the thing is, is that the, the, all of the, the women making this movie were, were all very opinionated yes, people. Right. So the idea that all four of them agreed on something, I mean, yes. what could I, what could I possibly say? There's going to be this say? magic club, and Roberta's going to go in, and she's going to get a job as a magician's assistant. Now, Sarah's on a payphone in the snow somewhere, and listening to this. <laughs> because, because, well, one of the things we always felt about the Magic Club and her going into an environment is that we wanted to show, even though it is comical, that Roberta is becoming. That Roberta is going to be able to use her wiles to survive and be independent Absolutely. in the world. If it's a magician's assistant, you know, or if it's, you know, a maitre d' at a, at a uh, maitre d' at a restaurant, but you can see that she can go out there into and, this world. And, and definitely and take care of herself. I mean, if, if, if Susan, you know, does it by ways that we don't completely approve, Roberta gets to learn to do it on ways that we do approve that are completely her and herself. And, you know, the enormous dependency in the way she first reacts to her husband where, yes, yes, you're right, yes, yes. And, and you know, she seems to take 
all his complete neglect for granted, now she's beginning to say, I can do things myself. You know, I'm a person too. And the only way you can do that is if you do do it yourself. And so this became pivotal on a it was like a hokey idea with a great underpinning. Mm -hmm. and That's the, what and it was, really. A hokey idea with incredible emotional underpinning. And the thing that was wonderful about John Turturro is that he, by playing the master of ceremonies at that magic club, he took what was kind of a wild and go you know, goofy idea and grounded it because he himself is so believable that even if you know you've never you can't believe a magic club yeah, is, very uh, is there in Manhattan all of a sudden John Turturro and you believe that yeah. this magic club exists the scene okay, the scene was so funny Midge is driving in her car just recently and she's listening to Mike Figgis and Nick Cage talk about leaving Las Vegas and Nick Cage sort of turns to Mike Figgis and says, whatever gave you the idea that you could actually direct movies? And he said, well, you know, there's a, there's a scene in Desperately Seeking Susan where John Turturro is talking to Rosanna Arquette and he says, practice, practice a lot. And that's, what that's how Mike Figgis <laughs> describes how he got to be a director. <laughs> what, I, what I had to do. This, there's a scene in which um, Madonna's character meets um, Roberta's husband, played by Mark Blum, at a rock club called Danceteria. And again, uh, it was not written, it was written as a dialogue scene with the two of them standing by the bar. Any director is stupid if they don't look at what's going on around them and try to incorporate what's wonderful about what's going on in this, in front of their eyes and try to put it into the film. Um, it, was a, it was a dance club. It became much more interesting to try to incorporate movement into the scene. So that day we decided in the course of one of the rehearsals, wouldn't it be fun if rather than having her have this dialogue, which which was fun, but was basically an informational scene, uh, rather than having it static, let's let's use the fact that they're in a dance club and that they're dancing, and give the dialogue that way. And um, here you have this kind of uptight suburban guy in a world with all these strange, weird people. You know, if he was standing by the bar, you know, maybe we could milk some humor out of that situation. Putting him on a dance floor, watching him dance in his goony way, it's funny and it's visual and uh, it disguises what could just be an informational scene and makes it into a scene that uh, it's a nice fish out of water scene. Madonna brought in a basement tape of the song Into the Groove, which nobody had ever heard before. It was At the first time anybody had heard it, and we ended up using it for the scene, thinking we could change it, we might have to change it, but then um, got, got the rights to the song, and then it got released as a dance 
single. It was a big brouhaha because after we used this that day and we really liked it, we called Freddie DeMann and, and said, hey, we really like that song into the group. We assumed it was on the Like a Virgin album, yeah, which wasn't. had just come out. Nobody and it really hadn't. knew about it. So Warner Brothers was not that excited about the fact that here we had a whole new song that wasn't on the album and they were going to be peeling songs off the album, you know, and on, onto MTV. And we wanted to do our own MTV with this song for our movie, but we finally got, were able to do that. And I think that one moment where we really realized how successful the movie was and the way it had entered the culture is that DJs started pirating the song off of MTV. Which was really very exciting. Again, as you can see in these scenes, the, the lighting, which is now so common in MTV, you know, music videos, really was pretty unusual for a feature film at that time. It just wasn't, um, you know, using unrealistic colored gels just hadn't been done. It's, it's that tone of heightened reality. To me, you know, when, when I describe it, it's just hyper-reality. Um, you know, here's an exterior of, of Rosanna coming out of the club, but the street is sort of lit with green gels. It, it's not naturalistic night lighting, but it just adds this kind of interesting twist, twist to it all. I remember Ed Lockman once said something to me, which, which I thought was really um, interesting and smart. His philosophy was that every scene should only have two colors in it two main colors in it, that a lot of, you know, boring, boringly shot and, 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 and photographed um, mainstream Hollywood movies um, have too many colors in it. <laughs> Literally, like in reality, there's a lot of, you know, there's no organization to color in reality. But, but if you only put, a, if you limit your color palette, you can kind of accentuate or force the viewer to look at certain things and not look at other things. And it doesn't become a big hodgepodge. Um, for example, the Magic Club is lit in, in red and either red and green on the outside or red and purple on the inside. Roseanne Arquette's, uh, or Roberta's house is only sort of pink and peach and beige. Um, you know, there was a scene down the alley. If you look at the way the alley lit is lit, it's only gets sort of yellow and blue green, and and no alley really looks like that. That's not realistic alley lighting. But rather than making it look uh, overly colorful and silly, um, he would only he'd pick two strong contrasting colors and then light reality using only those two. This was a oh, very. Oh, this is funny. This is this the Spanish TV version of his? Yeah, the, of and his, over here we see the Spanish TV version. You know, but we like this moment where she she still has amnesia, but she's looking at her husband, and boy, he does look kind of familiar. This is a real compromise. This moment here between uh, Midge and me and 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 uh, Susan, because we Susan was never comfortable with the amnesia staying all the way to the end of the movie, which is the way it used to be. It's really tricky from this point on. How does this work uh, with her knowing who she is and why isn't she going home? And fortunately, and it was a lesson that we learned that, you know, 
when you got a movie that is really working for your audience and they want to stay in it and they want to stay in this world, you get to slide over uh, stuff that really doesn't quite make sense. We're about to come up with the scene where Roseanne Arquette uh, rushes, is being pursued by the bad guy, rushes down an alleyway and gets conked on the head again, hence coming out of her amnesia. Um, again, which I think Rosanna did a wonderful job at being able to, you know, it's a hard, it's, it's, a, it's a hard act. <laughs> it's hard to act coming out of amnesia in, in the context of a romantic comedy. And, and she does it wonderfully. And, and again, sticking her in, in, this is a scene where she finds herself in the, she's thrown into a police car because the policeman thinks she's a hooker. And uh, there's, a, there's a, a, a kind of experienced hooker already sitting in the back seat who turns to her and says, what do you do with the birds? because Rosanna's running around with this sort of birdcage. Um, it, it, again, it just sort of cuts the... Uh, um, cuts the tension with humor of what could have been uh, a bad amnesia moment. Once you give this character amnesia, how do you ungive her amnesia? And again, it was done with another knock on the head. But... Um, you know, our hope, and, and this is one of the things, you know, it, it's hard to sort of talk about or describe tone when you're starting out a movie. You're, you have an idea about what the tone should be, but you're never really sure what the tone of the movie is until everything converges. Um, you know, I think we were all a little bit nervous about, you know, getting knocked, you know, it's a movie about amnesia. Somebody gets knocked on the head, they get it. They get knocked on the head at the end of the movie and they instantly, the amnesia disappears. Um, I, I think what was so wonderful was that somehow, and, and I, I'd like to say it was all planned this way, but it really wasn't. There was this convergence of the style of the movie, the tone of the performers, the, the, the cinematography, and, and the music that all blended together to make what could have been something very silly or heavy-handed or stupid actually work in, in, in a fairy tale way. You know, th this movie's a fairy tale, but it also has a kind of philosophical and political resonance because there's certain fairy tales that wouldn't have had, that would have just sort of worked as a, a yarn, as a tale, but not had some contemporary resonance to it. And I think that, that tone issue is, is, is also a lot of just about luck. You know, you just sort of hope, all, you plant all these seeds and hope all these people that each have their own point of view, um, that it all sort of converge together to, to make one solid, unified whole piece. I mean, we've all seen movies where you feel like the actors are in one movie, the director is directing another one, and the art director is doing something different. And you never know if that's going to happen or not, but somehow all those things fed each other. And I think the whole is better than the sum of the parts in a way, in that it all really did reinforce each other. From the vantage point of the West Coast, as, as the two producers were there on a day-to-day -day basis, what, what we got was, of course, the release of her single on, on Warner Brothers and the release of the album from the UPM, from, from Mike Pizer. It's like, I need more money for security. What do you mean? I thought we're like down and dirty and, you know, very quiet. Mm -hmm. and we, 
you it's like riot time with Madonna mm -hmm. and the, the the item that went up coinciding with the release of the record was the amount of security just to get the filming done uh, that that Pizer wanted uh, when when this record you know zoomed because wanted. like a virgin the album came out while we were shooting and it was amazing like Mike says I have calls up and says you know I'm having some real problems my god what is it well, I, I need some money for security. It's like you're trying to figure out why there's nobody in this movie even I know. And that was it. It was like New York, Madonna. She lived there. She was working there. And, you know, the record was just made her, you know, if she was up and coming, she was like overnight. Hello. When, when Madonna was ultimately cast, um, and again, I think there was probably nervousness on everyone's part until we started seeing the dailies because uh, she was becoming a house, she, she wasn't even becoming a household name. She was becoming a little bit more known in New York and amongst people who follow music, but it wasn't really until after the movie was actually towards the very end of the shooting in the movie where she, where there was a quantum leap in the level of her fame. The, the movie was, was still not really geared or we didn't think that a 10, 11, 12 year old girl would have any interest in wanting to see this movie. It was still geared for, you know, college students and above, you know, um, not necessarily just the art film world, but, but, but not a necessarily a mainstream audience. But, um, but it wasn't until we, we realized that Madonna was becoming hugely famous and and that a lot of her following weirdly enough were these you know 10 11 and 12 year old Madonna wannabes weirdly enough what the movie also is about is Rosanna Arquette is sort of the first on-screen Madonna wannabe I mean I hate to say that that's you know we it's a movie about a woman seeking her identity and all that other kind of stuff but on some other simple level what was coming across to 13 year old girls is this is the uh, this is a Madonna wannabe who dresses up like her idol and, and so suddenly, surprisingly to all of us, um, we, we had a movie that we hope not only would, uh, you know, 20 and 30 year old and above year old women and hopefully men like, but also that preteen girls were also beginning to respond to. It, it was really interesting because there were certain issues that came out with, um, and the script was not changed um, once we realized or we were beginning to realize the, the, the level of Madonna's fame. I think what changed was the fact that suddenly this person that people were recognizing on the street and as we were filming, um, even though she was saying the words that were scripted, the fact that it was Madonna saying those words made those scenes, punched those scenes up, you know, made them, just made those scenes grab attention. And I think that that was of some concern uh, at, at some point to Roseanne Arquette because certainly when we started the movie it was Roseanne Arquette was the star of the movie. Roberta is the that both women are the main characters but if you look at it on a line by line basis or scene by scene basis probably Roberta has more scenes and more lines than than uh, than the Susan character. But I think that as uh, Madonna's fame was escalating, there was probably some level of insecurity or of, of awareness on the part of, you know, Roseanne Arquette that this was becoming the Madonna movie. Um, 
As far as the producers and certainly as far as the studio was concerned, the fact that it was being perceived as the Madonna movie was only a plus to them, was, was, was not a negative. Um, for me, because I don't think I was directing Madonna any differently than I was directing Rosanna Arquette, nor was the, were the, was the content of the scenes changing. It, it only had a positive effect if it was going to make more people see the movie. To me, that was great. Um, but I think it did have the effect of, of perhaps making Rosanna, during the filming of the movie, feel a little bit more insecure that, that she was no longer being perceived as being the star. I mean, I think, again, there's, there's nothing you can do about those things, but certainly filming on the streets of New York where Madonna always had her home base and fans before the rest of the world, before she conquered the rest of the world, um, somewhere, I guess the, film, the filming was nine and a half or 10 weeks, somewhere probably around the sixth, seventh, eighth week, uh, people were beginning to notice Madonna and, and the filming, and so suddenly there was issues of security. In the beginning of the film, when we first, the first day we filmed with Madonna on St. Mark Street, we didn't have uh, police guards or any extra security. Later on in the film, I think we needed to have some extra security put on because it was amazing to witness. Literally within that two-month time span from start a movie, start of filming to end of filming, um, the level of Madonna awareness had, had, had jumped enormously. And then, um, certainly by the time the film was released, her Like a Virgin album, which was really her big breakthrough album, had opened and sort of converged. Suddenly Madonna found herself with a movie that was opening a, 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 an album that was on, you know, the top, 10 or was number one or whatever it was, both within the same month. So th I think those two things compounded or played on each other to the benefit, certainly of Madonna and, 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 and of her recording career and certainly of, of the movie. Um, I mean, it's, it's weird because, because it really did happen on, on a week by week basis, it was, it was hard to believe that th this groundswell was happening that quickly. I think also at a, at a certain point when we did decide to go with her, we convinced ourselves, because we weren't obviously sure, she hadn't really acted before, um, is that she was playing a character in this movie that was very close to who she was, or who she presented herself as. Um, now, we made the movie with her, we don't know her well enough or didn't know her well enough to, to, to then say at the end of the movie, well, that's true. She's actually, she's really a street person herself. She's really playing herself. So there's not that much acting to do. But it was something that I think we um, tried to console ourselves, you know, or make our, ourselves feel better that there was a certain kind of presence that she was playing that would come across. And, um, and one of her songs. An attitude. Which she certainly had, you know, to the... What was always uh, important about the character of Susan is that she was a very kind of anti-bourgeois character. We always describe her as a, the kind of uh, woman who could 
go around the world uh, with 50 cents in her pocket and never have to worry about where her next meal was coming from. Because, partly because people would always want to give things to her and because, in essence, she was a taker. It's funny how a lot of times you go into story meetings in town and people are always going, what's the character's arc? What, how do they change? How do they grow? And the thing about the character of Susan in Desperately Seeking Susan is she doesn't change at all. She is never going to change. She is always going to be essentially this person. And, uh, and also, the other thing is, I remember people saying, well, do we like her? Is she sympathetic? Are we going to like somebody, you know, who, who takes from other people, literally steals things? Um, runs up phone bills at their runs house. Runs up phone and... bills. I mean, this is not a sympathetic character. But because she was our main character's obsession, those things were not really important. She was, she was the other that, that Roberta was interested in. There's a scene in the movie where uh, Madonna pulls up. It, she's driving um, Mark Blum, the husband's car, and she pulls up in front of the newspaper office because she's going to place a personal ad, desperately seeking stranger. She's going to try to look for Roseanne Arquette. As she's walking into the newspaper office, you see standing in front of the newspaper office three identical triplets, three guys who kind of ogle her, give her the eye as she walks in. And again, because the movie is so much about identity, it, it's sort of playing with that issue of, you know, there's, there's two Susans and now there's three triplets that are, um, that are giving Madonna the eye. And uh, when we went to shoot that scene, I, there were these three guys that were standing on the street who looked identical, who were wearing identical, identical clothing. And I kind of assumed that this was a brilliant move on the part of the extras casting person, you know, who could have put in any kind of background action that, you know, that they wanted just to kind of fill the street. How clever to find triplets. And as it turned out, as luck would have it, these three guys were not extras. They were just three triplets that happened to be walking down the street. Um, we were filming on a street that had a lot of photographic studios, uh, and they were coming from some sort of photo session where they had obviously had their picture taken as triplets and were walking down the street and happened to just be stopping and watching us filming. And when I saw them, um, it, it just seemed like in this kind of movie, which is so much about identity, wouldn't it be great to have these, to use these triplets? And that, that to me is just one of the wonderful things about filming in New York City is that they're all, all the time there were these sort of weird, uh, just sort of happenstance things that, you know, whether it was some interesting character that happened to sort of find their way into a scene in the background or some interesting location, uh, that's the kind of stuff that, that New York provides for you that had the studio insisted that we film in Toronto, which was something that they had wanted us to do at one point, you would have never been able to find that kind of texture and those kinds of unusual characters, you know, just filming on the streets in Toronto. And I think it's a fallacy that New York is, has to be so expensive. Um, I think that there's ways of doing things cheaply in New York, and, and certainly the kind of texture, and it's not just the locations, it's also there's just a lot of interesting looking people. It's such a melting pot of, of, of different types of people in New York City that you just get just the faces on the extras. You can't find those, that, that, the diversity of those kinds of faces anyplace else.
the studio, Orion, wanted to um, release this as a PG-13 movie. There was certain, I remember there was certain language that had to be changed. I think, you know, with each of the ratings, they, you know, you're allowed to say the F word once or twice to get a PG-13 movie. There's no nudity. And there was a, there, there were a few scenes where, you know, I, there's a scene where Rosanna Arquette is in bed with Aiden Quinn and the sheet, you could see her breasts or something. I, so I know that there were certain things we had to do, like put a, optical shadow over her breast so you don't see her nipple. Um, in the editing room, there were certain scenes that we had to sort of um, uh, shorten. There's a scene where Aiden Quinn actually um, dropped his towel at one point, so you saw his behind, his naked behind. We had to put a shadow there, too. But again, there was nothing that, that I can't really say giving it a PG-13 majorly influenced the movie in, in, in any way. Listen, I know Susan. Whatever she told you doesn't mean shit. Now, this was crazy. This is funny. You know, here is the moment that we think the movie could completely fall apart because here is Roberta in the apartment with Jim and, and Des together how do we deal with it? And Susan came up with that she just decides to leave, that it's just kind of too much and she goes out the window. And it works. I mean, it's like one of those moments where you actually, Roberta, you can actually imagine that because all that's happened, that Roberta actually has this sort of total sort of crise de conscience and must just flee the scene mm -hmm. of, of, a, of this crime rather than straighten it out. She could go right inside into the other room and explain everything to both of them. And, and, and Susan, this is the example of pictures telling a story because uh, with the, this moment, this moment where, where Roberta is sitting on the park bench uh, with the, pi the pigeons, there, there's such a forlorn quality to the moment that you totally believe that she just, she was at wit's end. She did not know what to do. Um, so what does she do? She's a personal. <laughs> when we came up with the Magic Club, I don't think that we really talked about, or, you know, in that kind of intellectual way, well, this would be really exciting for her to go and work at a magic club because what magic represents is the magical transformation of, you know, birds come out of the air or, you know, and, and unexpected things happen, which is very parallel, really, to what's happening with Roberta in her life in this movie, which is she is making kind of a magical transformation from the trapped housewife to the real Roberta, whoever that may be. She's figuring it out um, in the course of this story. In the original script, there was no magic club. I think there, uh, a lot of the kind of adventure that links the two women had took place. I know originally it took place at a museum, uh, in the Museum of Natural History. You know that uh, I think the Roberta character finds a postcard. Um, some sort of anthropological postcard that brings her to the Museum of Natural History and somehow that hooked into the Susan character who was kind of a world traveler. And I think, you know, the, anth the, the anthropological subplot had to do with sort of discovering, again, this, this but, but in an intellectual way, discovering who you are and your roots and, and uh, digging under the surface of things. Whereas in the rewrite, 
one of the things that was interesting when, when I started talking with um, Leora Barish and we both realized that we love Celine and Julie was to kind of get away from the intellectual, um, that intellectual idea and sort of go into much more of a, of a kind of magical um, theme, you know, that the idea of, of wish fulfillment and magic and, 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 and transformation and somehow that's where the idea of this magic club came about. And, and what's interesting about the Magic Club as a location and as a world, because this is the world where the two women's lives uh, interconnect, and, and you know, it sounds silly on paper, but the idea that Roberta becomes a magician's assistant, again, it's about transformation, just as the beauty parlor is about transforming yourself. Well, magic is about illusion, and we're not always who things are and what they appear to be. So again, it was kind of a humorous way to, to, to bang home that same theme, but find a, um, a, 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 for me, a visual, a more visually exciting and entertaining way of doing that. Um, I think Santa Lacosta did an amazing job at creating a world that this magic club, it isn't like a, th there's no magic club in the world that, ex that exists like this. And it certainly wasn't anything that existed in, in New York. The, the styling and the tone of it was some sort of combination of New wave and retro. It had some mix. It was almost a little bit punk, but a little bit a throwback to the 1920s. Um, you know, for example, there's a there's an actress who ended up acting in in, in, in many other movies named Anne Magnuson, who has a little part here as the cigarette girl. You know, what kind of club again? You know, realistically has uh, you know sort of blue-haired waitresses and then a cigarette girl who's you know walking around with you know, those old Philip Morris uh, cigarette trays. So I think that timeless quality that Santa was able to incorporate, again, put this slightly otherworldly fantasy-like element into the film that emphasized the, the theme we were trying to get at. And this was a very funny moment. We're making them, we're getting to this point. Aiden is sitting there on the bar stool. We're about to shoot him in close-up, getting his reaction to watching Roberta come on stage and um, he's supposed to be really surprised and all of a sudden Aiden says why am I surprised I know she works in a magic club I saw her with the her paraphernalia of course she works in a magic club and we we were scratching our heads and what could we say it was like a hole in the script that none of us had thought of before and we just all looked at each other and said it's just funnier. It's just funnier for him to be surprised. And Aiden said, okay, I'm just going to be. And he's just like, I decided to act surprised. It was kind of like, well, he hadn't actually seen her do it. So now he can see her with the wig and the, you know. He can look amazed. And so, uh, yeah, it's like, look, sure enough, knows. there he is. Look, looking, she kind of knows uh, what she's doing. And also juxtaposed with them watching her. Yeah, this uh, was actually the, this this moment. Oh, here's the feet. That was the feet in the yeah. box. Yeah. Um, we had to get somebody really tiny, whose whose feet could be in the half of the box. And there was a woman who was well, Susan was, but she was not about to get into the box. I'm sure since she had to direct the movie. Um, a woman who worked at Orion, uh, Julie Landau, and and she was the person we grabbed to get into the other half of the box. She's very proud that her feet yeah, are, are, in, are the in the movie. You see a transformation in, uh, in the movie here uh, that uh, in, this in this scene, uh, Rosanna 
uh, Roberta is almost as amazed, more amazed at the at the magic than uh, than the, the people watching. Uh, but by the end of the movie, she is doing the magic, uh, you know, quite well and is uh, a very a good assistant. This is the moment that uh, is is a, is where actually Rosanna had this idea. Um, Rosanna ended up standing, you know, standing up in between the men above them, uh, you know, and, and she's got the two men on either side. She's sort of caught in the middle, and yet she's above them both. And then I think, uh, and Mark Blum, it was really interesting. Once again, you know, we just don't want men to be sort of the girl in the movie. And, you know, in this final scene between Mark um, and Rosanna, I mean, Mark was very concerned about his dignity and what really made sense in terms of his character. Why don't you stop and go back to the pinball and we can tell. Okay. There, was another, there were two other things that we had to do optically to get a PG-13. There was a scene where Rosanna and uh, Roberta and Dez were in bed um, and we had to optically put a shadow over her nipple. And here, this is the medium shot, which we made from a longer shot. So when you originally the shot looked more like that, but it looked too much like they were fucking on top of the pinball machine. So we had a medium shot, so it looks like they're more embracing. Now they pull back from the medium shot optically, so you see him with his pants down. But it doesn't. It's, it's not graphic. It's not gra It's not like actual penetration, which is what it looked like which we the didn't first really time. Show. We, anyway. <laughs> there were various. Uh, scripted endings to the movie. Um, there were various endings to the movie that we shot, <laughs> and then there's the ending to the movie as it as it finally appeared. Um, I think one of the the things that originally we had wanted and and that we filmed was that we wanted to end the movie instead of with each woman going off with her respective man. We we knew that this is a it's a female friendship story. And we knew that we wanted the women, that, that wouldn't it be great if we could have the women ending up together in some way at the end of the movie. I hate to say it, but it is a love story between these two women. Um, not, not necessarily a lesbian love story or a sexual love story, but it's sort of a spiritual love story. Um, so we felt strongly that we did want um, the two women to end up together at the end. It's interesting because I have uh, mixed feelings about the whole screening process, the, 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 the um, test market, market screening process. On the one hand, I think that it can be really dangerous. On the other hand, I do think it does give you information that is useful. To make a long story short, we did have two test screenings with this ending. And I think what we learned from those screenings was that the movie had too many endings. Again, the whole thing about those market screenings is that some of the information, if you take it too literally, can I think can can be harmful in that sometimes, you know, it's, it's such a small sampling of people and it may be the wrong audience and you may be screening it in the wrong town. You know, there's so many factors that get involved. But the one thing that we did come away with knowing was that in both those uh, screenings, people thought that the movie had ended and then it went on, and then it went on, and then it went on. So we ended up taking off the additional endings, getting the best of both, and not making it too long. 
We had a lot of problems with the ending, and I didn't like the ending as written and as eventually shot. But again, with utter respect for the producers and the director, we went ahead and shot it, I think in New Jersey or Maryland. Sand Quarry in New Jersey. Someplace like that, camels and all. Then, of course, we had didn't have a lot of support from Orion Distribution looking and marketing, saying we love this picture. It was like, we're going to test this movie. So we're out of Atlanta on a Friday night, all of us, and uh, we test it, and the numbers are not very good. And I'm saying, yeah, you know, self-fulfilling prophecy, this is where you tested it. Where do we get to Boston? We go the next night to Boston, the numbers are worse. Everybody's a film critic in Boston. And we had a third screening after we did some work in LA where the numbers marginally went up. I mean, they went up at least we didn't, you know, like cry, <laughs> you know, at least we said, ah, we went up five points. And of course, then what was wonderful that happened and, and you know, part of working for a, a big studio is we began to get the reviews from the magazines, uh, you know, the week before and they were completely, utterly sensational. And, you know, nothing is like that first weekend gross. In, in the various uh, versions of the screenplay, um, there was a lot of issue about Des, uh, his character's profession. We finally ended up with him being a projectionist in a movie theater. And one of the things that I liked about that was that, um, it, you know, was that we all love movies, so it was nice to give him a movie profession. It was also nice to give him a profession that was sort of a down-to-earth profession, that he wasn't a, a, a kind of aspiring uh, avant-garde filmmaker. He was a guy who loves movies, who's a projectionist. Um, and it also enabled us to use the movie theater as a backdrop for, for some of the scenes, which again was sort of a nice, if you're a cinema lover, it was kind of a nice, um, it, was, it was playing around with cinema. You know, this is all a movie, this is all illusion. Look here, we're gonna burn a hole in this movie and, 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 and show you that it's all an illusion. The thing about Desperately Seeking Susan we always felt that this movie was represented sort of the quintessential film experience like Roberta. We want to be somebody else. We want to we, we want to get amnesia. We want to get out of our own skin and more particularly we want to get out of our heads, you know, and into another reality and that that's what this movie, you know, is about and it's about Roberta by, by leaving her reality, um, uh, she truly becomes who she, who she really is. Orion was great. Um, it's a shame that they went out of business. Once they hired you to do the job, they pretty much let you get on with your job. There was a, a slightly hands-off approach that they took. The problem with a lot of hit movies is that uh, sometimes there's so much about the times that they take place in that when you watch them 15 years later, they, they really feel dated. Um, I know I've watched, you know, movies that have been, you know, hippie movies from the 60s, you know, where everyone's walking around saying groovy and man and dig it. And you look at it and they kind of work as kitsch now, but they're really sort of silly. Um, then there's those movies that were made 
that, that really identify a certain period of time, but are also kind of classical in the sense, like Billy Wilder movies like The Apartment, which is very much about New York City in the late 50s, early 60s, but very much captures the spirit of, of sort of get-ahead corporate America uh, of its time, but also still uh, incorporates universal themes about relationships and love and loneliness and all that kind of stuff. And I guess I was hoping that, that Desperately Seeking Susan would work on that kind of classic timeless level because it's sort of about an issue that I think women certainly and, and, and people in general, you know, who am I, who do I want to be, what, you know, is the life that I have different than the life I want to be having? That's, that's a pretty universal theme. Um, so, so I hope that it would would remain timeless because of that theme and that it would also feel interesting as kind of an interesting cultural artifact in that it represents or, or tried to capture New York, the, the quintessential New York of, of the mid-1980s. And I know that uh, I haven't seen the film. I, I really haven't watched it much since it first came out and since I was sitting in the editing room and watched it a billion times. And, and watching it now, which is now, you know, 11 years later, I'm not cringing. I don't find that it's embarrassing, uh, you know, looking at some of the stuff which could have been dated. I find it interesting as a kind of interesting sociological study of what, you know, because culture's changed a lot. In every year, the culture changes a lot. But, the, you know, 1996 is real different than 1985. But yet I think that there's a, a, a kind of spirit that this movie captures that if you put it in a time capsule would give you a real clear picture of what culturally was going on in America, New York at that time. And that still doesn't feel embarrassingly dated because the issues and um, the characters are still kind of honest and the themes are, are, are timeless.